Doing all right? If you got your Bibles with you, open up to the book of Isaiah. We're going to be taking a look at tonight at Isaiah chapter 6. I'm hoping to get to Isaiah chapter 7, but I was hoping that last week. And I didn't barely get out of 5. So we'll see how we do tonight. But as we take a look again, remember, Isaiah the prophet was prophesying during the split, the division of the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. Remember, David had a son uh, that reigned after him named Solomon. Solomon, the Lord said, Solomon, ask me for anything you want and I'll give you whatever you ask for. And you remember Solomon, he, he didn't ask for riches. He didn't ask for all that other stuff. He said, give me wisdom. So God gave Solomon wisdom like no other man on the face of the earth has ever had before or since. And Solomon, in, in a time in his life when he was really disobeying God, even with all that wisdom, he still had a sin nature just like we have. And he was falling away from what God wanted him to do and how God was directing him. And when he did that, one of the things he wrote is he said, Now, I can build this great kingdom, but who's to say whether or not the ones who come after me will keep it? Well, he was right. The ones who came after him didn't keep it. They tried to tax the people. The people rebelled. The nation was split in two. Northern kingdom is Israel. Southern kingdom is Judah. Now, we know and you have to realize people from this section of Scripture, they start to think that there are ten lost tribes. There are not ten lost tribes. The Bible tells us that all of Israel, the whole, all of twelve tribes, lived in each of the two kingdoms. Those who were desiring to follow after godly leadership They went south to Judah. Why? Because Judah had more godly kings. Israel had zero. Not one. Those who desired the freedom to sin, well, they went to the northern kingdom. So you had representatives of of each of the 12 tribes together. And ultimately, when Babylon takes the southern kingdom into captivity, before they take the southern kingdom of Judah, they're going to conquer Assyria. Assyria who conquers the northern kingdom... Israel and has them as slaves. So Babylon conquers them and takes their slaves. What did they take? They took the the people of Israel. And they're joined together with the house of Judah when they conquer Judah together in captivity to Babylon and on further on into their history. So this is the period of time when Isaiah is speaking to us. When Isaiah is laying out to the kings of Judah, especially in the first Uh, six or seven chapters he's really focused on judah he will spend some time prophesying toward israel and uh and then again some of their enemies as we continue to go forward but tonight we got a a bit of a special treat isaiah chapter six probably one of my favorite all time in the world sections of isaiah because isaiah has an experience that i think we all would desire to have today isaiah is going to see the lord and it begins, we look at Isaiah chapter 6, look, look how it begins. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 declares to us, In the year that King Uzziah died. Now we've got to understand something about King Uzziah. King Uzziah began his reign when he was 16 years old. And he reigned for 52 years. He was a godly man. He was working reform throughout the nation of Israel, bringing them back to their roots in in worshiping the Lord and desiring a relationship with Him. He was a pretty solid guy, and everybody looked to him. 
I mean, he was, that, he was that figurehead that we all hope to have even in our nation one day. That guy that we can just rally behind and say, man, this is a guy I would follow to the gates of hell with a bucket of water. That's what Uzziah was to the nation of Israel or to the, to the land of Judah. That's the person that he was. Man, they just followed him wherever he led, whatever he did. In fact, in, uh, in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, it really lays out the, the concept behind his reign. During his reign, he, uh, he wiped out the Philistines that were bothering him, uh, the neighborhood uh, nations that were they're trying to force their way in and, and drive him out. But then, as so often happens, King Uzziah started to deal with the little something we like to call pride. I'm sure that never enters in for any of us, but for King Uzziah, it became a problem. He had all these great victories. He started to think he was all that. And one day he got the idea. He said, you know what? I don't need this high priest telling me what God says and what God... I'm going in. I'm going to assume the role of the high priest. And he went in before the Lord and was struck with leprosy until the day he died. A national hero... A guy that everybody followed. A guy that was, by all intents and purposes, he's a solid dude. I mean, he's following the Lord. He, he wants to glorify God with his life, but he had a moment of pride in it, and it cost him in his reign. He reigned 52 years, but, but leprosy kills him. And throughout the Scriptures, guys, it's important for us to realize leprosy is a picture, is a type of sin. You know sin pays wages, right? Every single time, sin leads to one place. I don't care whether you think it's a big sin or a little sin. All sin leads to one place. Death. And that's where it took Uzziah. And so, for the nation of Israel, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a dark time. It's a bit of a dark time for them as they've just lost this, this incredible national figure. I mean, think of it. They had him for 52 years. It's not a four-year presidency. I mean, this guy ruled and reigned and did great things for him for 52 years. But it says, it's in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah said, that I saw the Lord. For each of us, we have a desire. I have a desire to see the Lord. But we got to get a comprehension for who is our King Uzziah. Is there someone that we're looking up to so much that we can't see the Lord because that's the person we see? I shared before, we had a band that came through when, when Kathy and I was, was doing youth back in California called Shadow Box Puppets. I always liked their name because the concept was we want to be invisible. We want to point to Christ. If in any way a, a teacher, a preacher, a pastor is drawing disciples after himself, he's wrong. It's wrong. We're to pull people to Jesus Christ. It's not about us. It's all about him. And we want to see the Lord. I want to see Jesus. I want to bask in His glory. But what is separating me? What is in the way? Who have I placed in that role? Have I placed anyone? Sometimes it's not a person we place there. Sometimes it's self. Who's enthroned for you? Who's on the throne for you that you're using as that guidepost, as that as that rule in your life. Because if it's yourself, if it's self that's guiding, directing, and making all those choices for us, then we, like Isaiah, won't see the Lord until that dies. 
until Uzziah is gone, we won't see the Lord. So Isaiah comes to that point in his life. May we come to that point in ours as well, where King Uzziah dies. And he says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. That word for the train of his robe, it it means quite literally the hem of his garment. Does that remind you of anything? Because when we consider the scriptures, does the idea that his hem, the hem of his garment filled the temple, does that mean anything? Because I remember this guy, Jesus, he was walking on his way to, to go heal Jairus' daughter. And as he's walking along the way, there was a woman who had an issue of blood who knew all she needed to do was touch what? Hem of his garment. Doesn't that seem odd? Why just the hem? Now, when I used to read that, I thought, well, because, you know, it's just the bottom. I just got to get a little bit. In that culture, the hem of the garment, the hem of the garment stood for the, the line of the family. It stood for all the power, prestige, everything that the family possessed was in the hem. You know how, like, is it the Scots that got the, the kilts? And they have the different patterns for different families. Now, you and I, if we weren't in that culture, we just think they're all wearing dresses. But each one of them symbolizes the family name by the pattern. It was the same way for the Jew in the hem of their garment. Sewn in that hem of the garment was the story, if you will, of their line, of their lineage. Now, remind yourself of another story. Remember King David being chased by Saul? And David hid in a cave and Saul came inside to relieve himself. You remember what David did? What did he do? He cut the hem of his garment. David, by cutting the hem of of his garment, was saying, your line is cut off. And you remember, David was grieved in his heart for doing it. Now, you and I, we read that and we go, what's the big deal? You cut his his britches. His pants got a cut. He'd just go get some more, right? But what he was doing was cutting off and saying, Saul, your line is cut off. And it's not that that wasn't true. Was it true? Sure it was. Saul's line is going to be cut off. Jonathan is going to die. Everybody but Mephibosheth is going to die. Mephibosheth is going to live the rest of his life as a cripple in David's house. But as we look at that, his line was going to end. But whose job was it to say his line would end? God's job, not David's. The beautiful story of David when we follow David's life is... He knew he was supposed to be king. He was anointed to be king. God said you're going to be king. But he didn't take one step to make himself king. He let God do it all. And God's the one who put him on the throne. So when we look at this section, when it says his train filled the temple, that's what it's talking about. The hem of his garment. The the power, prestige, character, everything that is God and is about God, written in that hymn, speaking to the Jewish mind that, hey, man, it fills the temple. It's not a little thing. It's speaking of this non-ending, forever and ever eternal, in the heavens, God's not going to stop. God's never going to end. It was a glorious thing for Isaiah to see. You see, I see his train. His train filled the temple. And above it stood seraphim. Have you ever heard of these fellows before? Seraphim. This is, by the way, in case you get yourself caught in a Bible trivia moment, the only place in the Bible that word's used. Seraphim. Everywhere else, it's a different word. You know what it is? Cherubim. 
Are the seraphim and the cherubim the same? Well, I don't know. There's these fellas that go to school for like umpteen years, and they speak the Hebrew and the Greek and Aramaic and, and probably a couple other languages, and they sit around in rooms with fancy hats and argue about whether seraphim and cherubim are the same. We don't know. We don't know. Seraphim means, just so you know, seraphim means burning ones. And the cherubim are described in Ezekiel as burning ones. So it's, it's very possible it's the same. It's also possible it's a different kind of angel. We don't know. But here we have seraphim, angels, around the throne of God, the very throne of God in his throne room, Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, when you get down into it, what the original language lays out for us is this. It's not this... This holy, 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 like this is the line I was created to save forever. But it's an idea that, that as the seraphim are looking at Almighty God, they break out into spontaneous praise over and over and over again. And they say, holy, holy, holy. Why? Why not holy, holy? Or holy, 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 holy. Why three? Why does he say, holy, holy, holy? It seems to me that it's a definite point of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We see within the Trinity, within the, the Godhead, the one God in three persons. I definitely see that for sure. But there's another point in it all. In Hebrew language, in order to, to give uh, uh, intensity, to speak forth power, you use repetition. The more you say it, the more intense that is. The holiness is. Holy, holy, holy. The pure holiness and beauty of all that God is. And what did they say holy is who? The Lord. Lord. Look in your Bibles. That word Lord should be capital L-O-R-D. That's important. Because that means it is the name of God. Not the word God for his name, but the name of God, Yahweh, Y-H-V-H. In the Hebrew alphabet, only consonants, no vowels. So they would only write the cons- consonants of God's name. That's why it's the impronounceable name of God. Some, some uh, define it as Jehovah, Yahweh, Yehovah. We don't know what it is, but we know that the capital L-O-R-D in your Bible is that name. So who are they talking to? Almighty God, the becoming one, the I am, the the one from Genesis chapter 3. This is almighty, absolute, unequivocally God of very God that is being seen and being spoken of. Why is that important? Because you have some friends that may come knock on your door and tell you that Jesus isn't God. That he's just another one of the creations of God. Well, while you have your finger held here, turn with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. We're going to take a quick look as as, uh, the scripture defines for us who it is that Isaiah is talking about. John chapter 12. 
We'll back up to verse 38. John 12, 38. Oh, we'll do 37. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. There, we're talking about Jesus. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they would see with their eyes, lest they would understand with their hearts, and turn, so that I should heal them. All right, well, that's, that's all Isaiah talking. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Folks, the subject of that entire chapter is Jesus Christ. What John is saying is this is what Isaiah spoke when he saw Jesus. Jesus called capital L-O-R-D. God of very God. This is what he saw when he saw his glory and spoke of him. It is emphatic in the Greek. There is zero room for argument it is emphatic that that he and him is directly pointing to Jesus Christ. So when we go back to Isaiah, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. And above it we see the seraphim and their wings uh, soaring over the top, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now, we know that Isaiah also is seeing the Lord with his eyes, right? I mean, isn't he saying, I saw the Lord? The plain understanding is he saw him. How can he see the Father? The Bible says God the Father is invisible. He is a spirit. No man can see me and live, the scripture says. But he sees God. Who's he seeing? Jesus Christ. He's seeing Jesus. Jesus is God declared to us. You understand that. He is God declared to us. That means no man has seen the Father at any time. John chapter 1 lays out for us. But the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth, He, Jesus Christ, reveals God to us. He shows us who God is. He is that person within the Godhead that declares to us what God is, what God wants, what God is all about, and He is the one that we are able to see with our eyes. Well, look what He says. The posts of the door were shaken by the voice of Him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. The smoke. What smoke are we talking about? It's a Shekinah glory of God. Remember the children of Israel when they were led through the wilderness? What led them? A pillar of fire by day and a cloud by night. The temple, the tabernacle, when Moses finished building the tabernacle, it filled with smoke. It filled with light. It filled with God's presence. And Moses had to bail. Sad thing is, quite a few years later, Ezekiel would tell him to put a sign over the temple that said Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. But the priests didn't know. They didn't know. Little by little, God wasn't there, and they didn't recognize it. They didn't recognize it because everything became words on a page and not real life, not real substance to them. It was just tradition, things we do. But the reality is, God's presence was there, and they could see 
God's presence in the temple. So the smoke is all around him, and Isaiah says, woe is me. Why is that important? Folks, if you go back to chapter 5, you can count, I think, seven woes. We look at it, it says, woe to those who join house to house. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to drink. Uh, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those that are wise in their own eyes. Woe to men mighty at mixing strong drink. Woe to men valiant uh, for intoxicating drink. And then we get to chapter 6. After all these woes to everyone else, what did Isaiah say? Woe is me. As Isaiah is being called in this place, and I think it holds true for each of us being called to the Lord, he has to come face to face with who he is. And if we have this elevated ideal that I am somehow this super pseudo-spiritual person because of the things I do, then I am not in the place of Isaiah. Because when Isaiah saw the Lord, all he could say is, woe is me. He didn't have woe for anybody else. It was just him. Woe is me. What's the difference? Isaiah, was he comparing himself to his brother or sister? No, he's standing in the presence of Almighty God. Folks, we all don't look so good standing before God. None of us will look good standing before the Lord. That's why we need Jesus Christ. That's why we need him in our life. It's important that we come to that place. That, we, we, that battle that we have with our flesh, within ourselves, is our flesh is going to tell us, well, you're pretty good. You're better than that fellow next year, that guy sitting in the back, or you're better than this, or you're better than that. Folks, you've got to do battle with your flesh and realize, I am a dirty, rotten, good-for-nothing, stinky sinner capable of not one good thing apart from Jesus Christ. And if you think that you're better than that, then you're not ready to serve. Because in order to be ready to serve, you have to come where Isaiah came. Woe to me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. I got no right to stand here before God. I got no right to be here in this place. I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm not good enough. That's a heart ready to serve. That's a heart ready to move forward and accomplish the things that God's calling us to do. We, we got to reach that point. Every, anything short of that, anything short of that, our ministry or our service is going to be tainted by the flesh. We think we're bringing something to the table. We're not bringing nothing. I shared with you before, and Kathy, in my uh, testimony, I am... Uh, in fact, I had an opportunity at Mount, to share at Mountain Home. We went to Mountain Home Calvary Chapel uh, last Friday, and we, we taught a, a marriage uh, a study, Bible study that they were having, a, a, a weekend deal. And we went up, and we shared our testimony. And before I started, I told him, I am, we need you to know, I am a dirty, good-for-nothing, unfaithful, cheating husband that would, apart from the work of Jesus Christ in my life, be just like a dog going back to his vomit, and I'd go back to all that same junk. The only thing that makes me righteous or able to walk is the Spirit of God moving and working in my life. That's it. Apart from Him, there is nothing good in me. Now, if Paul the Apostle could say that, 
We can all say that. Paul would say he was the chief of sinners. He was their captain. He was king sinner. Because he recognized, hey man, I killed people. I killed, I slaughtered people thinking I was doing God a favor. You had to come to the place where you know who you are if you're going to serve. That's where Isaiah is right now. Every time we see the Lord, that's where we'll be. We'll be in that place. We'll be in the place where we can say, man, I don't measure up, God. Why are you calling me? There's probably 100 people better qualified, but God says, but it has nothing to do with you. I just want to use you. I'm just going to take you because when I take you and use you, people will give me the glory because they'll look at you and say, man, there's no way Jackie did that. That's got to be the Lord. That's the way it was for Isaiah. Hey, I am undone. I am unclean. I am a sinner. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What was that second Lord? Do you see it? Capital L-O-R-D. The very name of God. And Isaiah spoke these things when he saw Jesus, according to John chapter 12, verse 41. So, Isaiah seeing the Lord, seeing the king. Isn't Jesus the king that's going to sit on the throne? Isn't he the one that's going to sit on David's throne and reign for a thousand years? Isn't he the promised real return of the king, Jesus Christ, when he returns? So here we have it. This is what he said when he saw the Lord. Then... One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. What altar? Well, not everybody agrees. Some people say it's the, the, the bronze altar. I don't necessarily believe that. I think this is the golden altar. The altar of incense. The altar that we see in Revelation chapter 6 in a variety of places where the prayers of the saints are offered up, that sweet-smelling incense that rises up into heaven. Why? Because the bronze altar is the cross, and they don't need the cross in heaven. The cross can stay down on earth. It's done. It's over. That part's finished. And the throne of God, we know what that is. That's the mercy seat. That's the mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant. I can tell you where it is. The Bible says it's in heaven. If man finds it again on earth, well, we'll see. But I know the Bible, and it says that the ark is in heaven. That the mercy seat is the throne of God. And that the, that altar that sits before the ark of the covenant, we studied it in Exodus. What sat right before the veil? The golden altar. The altar of incense. And from the altar of incense in heaven, the true altar of incense, where the intercessory prayer is offered continually by our Savior Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God the Father and lives to ever make intercession for you and me, they take a coal. The angels fly over and take a coal off of that golden altar in heaven and they go over to Isaiah with it. Let's see what happens. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. So what's just happened? Well, consider it. Isaiah saw the Lord, and when he saw the Lord, he was convicted. Wasn't condemned, but he was convicted. What happened next? He was cleansed. 
if we go before the Lord and we're convicted, we can experience God's cleansing power. The cleansing power of the sacrifice He made on the cross for you and I. For first we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ from the cross. And then we are bathed continually through the water of God's Word. Not to save us anew, but to clean the dirt off of us. Just like Jesus washing the feet of His disciples. He said, you're clean, but your feet are dirty. Let me wash them. It was a picture for us of the water of God's Word according to Ephesians chapter 5 washing over us and making us clean. Making us clean. So first he's before the Lord and he's convicted. Then the Lord cleanses him. And was, is he ready now? Now he's ready. Now he's ready to serve. Now he's ready to, to do whatever God is calling him to do. Look what happens. He says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Sin was burned away burned away speaks of that judgment and in the temple guys in the in the tabernacle what spoke of judgment bronze bronze spoke of judgment that sin had to be judged where was sin judged it was just on the brazen altar on the bronze altar where the sacrifices were made And that bronze altar is a picture of the cross where sin would be judged for all mankind forever. Done. Finished. It is completed. It must be judged. Sin must be burned away. Gone. Cut out of our lives. Disinfected. And he said, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? You catch it? Who will I send, singular, who will go for us, plural? Throughout the Bible, throughout the Bible, every once in a while I get calls from people that don't understand the Trinity. Hey, uh, folks, smarter men than me don't understand the Trinity. But it's written on every page. Who will I send? Who will go for us? Why did God use a plural pronoun for a singular person? Because he's one God, three persons. How do we know that? Because the whole counsel of God's word from Genesis to Revelation tells us the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. The whole Bible from from Genesis to Revelation tells us all three were a part of resurrecting Jesus Christ from the dead. The, the Bible tells us from Genesis to Revelation, all three were involved in every aspect of creation. Over and over and over again, we see the work that is attributed to Almighty God attributed to these three persons. Well, how's that work? I don't know. If I could fit God in a box and understand everything about Him, I'm not sure He's God anymore. I think that the Bible tells us that there are some things about God that are incomprehensible. But that really stumbles some people. God being incomprehensible. But that's what the Bible says. That's how he is. All I know is I study God's word from cover to cover and I see it. I see it throughout his word. We can hold on to it. We can trust it. We can believe it because the whole counsel of God's word teaches it. Not just talking about one verse here and there, but all the way through. We see it over and over again. Then I said... Uh, Verse 8, then I said, here am I, 
send me. Man, I love that. Listen, when Moses was called, you remember what he said? Uh, God, I stutter. I don't think that I should be the guy. Over and over and over again, we see people called of God and they say, yeah, you sure? Maybe you should call that, that other guy. I don't think I want to do that. But not Isaiah, man. Not Isaiah. When he saw the Lord, he was convicted, he was cleansed, and when God said, who will go for us? Isaiah said, here I am, send me. But the reason he was ready to go was because he went through those other things. Sometimes the reason we're ready to go is because of the furnace of affliction that God takes us through in our everyday lives. Those things of life that we hate, that we detest. We say, why did I have to go through this? Why did that have to happen? Why did this have to go on in my life? But it's those very things that are preparing us for the ministry that God is calling us to. So that when God says, who will go for us? We can answer like Isaiah. Here I am. Send me. I'm willing. I'm able. Let's go. We had an opportunity to go to the Philippines uh, my son and I, last year, year before, it was last year, two years ago, I don't know, it doesn't matter. We went to the Philippines, and whenever I go on a mission trip, I've been on several. I've been to the, the rainforest in Amazon, I've been to Russia, I've been to a variety of places. God's allowed me to go uh, down, deep down into Mexico. But whenever I go, I am never, will never be, I don't care what they ask me to do, afraid to go to where the people are that need to hear. And when we were in the Philippines, it's hot in the Philippines. So they told us when we come to the Philippines, bring shorts and flip-flops. So that's what we brung. Shorts and flip-flops. Now, for the little Filipino people, that works out really good. <laughs> them, them guys trucked to the top of this volcano sacks of cement on their backs. Up that hill in flip-flops. Faster than I could go without a sack of cement on my back. Just walking up the stupid hill. So it worked out pretty good for them. We came to this place that was called the dump. People there, uh, the poor people where we were going, they lived right in the dump. They set up a plastic sheet. That's it. That's their house. They live in the dump. They dig through the dump for their food. They dig through the dump for whatever they're going to need every single day. And nobody wants to go to them. Why? Because you go to the dump and it stinks and it smells and it's nasty. And you walk in and you step into the, the dump with your flip-flop and you sink to your knees in garbage. But the, the, the friend of mine that's up there, that's serving up there in the Philippines, says, Jackie, you want to go to the dump? Sure, I want to go to the dump. Let's go. Unfortunately, everybody that comes with me gets stuck doing what I do. <laughs> so we go to the dump, and we're pulling up to the dump, and Mike was saying, well, you guys can kind of go around the edges and talk to the people. I said, nah, we ain't doing that. So I turned around and told the guys, hey, we're going to go out there in the dump. We're going to help them dig through the trash, find the stuff they need to find. We're going to show them what the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ is really like. And the hands of Jesus and the feet of Jesus ain't worried about getting dirty or getting some fungus on your feet. You get home to the States and you got fungus, they'll fix it. Hopefully. <laughs> so... We went out into the middle of the dump and we got right in there next to them. We grabbed their sticks out of their hands and we started digging for whatever they were looking for, helping them find the junk that they had. 
Then when we finished doing that and we invited them to a, a time, a, a VBS for their children and a time of teaching for the adults, they, every single one of them came. The place was so packed that nobody could sit down. Everybody had to stand up. I couldn't hardly breathe doing worship. It was so hot with all, just all the bodies that were in the room. But praise God that they all came. Why they all come? Because somebody was willing to go where they were to get down in the filth, to get down in the dirt, to climb down in that junk and show them the love of Jesus Christ. Now, that's what Jesus calls us to do. But in order to be ready to do that, in order to be prepared to move forward, you got to go through what Isaiah went through. you got to be convicted. you got to be cleansed. you got to realize it's all the work of Jesus. don't have nothing to do with me. And anybody could do that. Anybody could have done what we did as a team down there in the Philippines. And hopefully people still are. Anybody that's willing can do it. Here am I. Send me. God, I'm willing. God, I want to go. God, I want to be what you're calling me to be. So verse 9, he said, Go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Oh, now that's a drag, folks. You know what God, you catch what God just told Isaiah. God just told Isaiah, you're going to preach to these people and nobody's going to listen. You're going to preach to them and they're not going to see. But you keep sharing. You keep talking. Now, how many of us, if we were called to ministry and we show up and we say, Lord, here I am, send me. And God said, all right, now, as you go forward, no one's ever going to listen to you. Oh, Cool, sign me up for that. But Isaiah was ready to go. Isaiah wanted to be in it and a part of it. Even though nobody's going to see. Folks, people look at this verse and they look at it from the wrong angle. And, and I don't really know how to, how to fix it. People look at this verse and say, well, God blinded their eyes and they can't see and they're not going to be able to see. No, the people made a choice to blind their eyes and the Lord allowed them to stay in that choice to blind their eyes so that they would not see. But God still preached every day. Isaiah still took the word. God knew they were all going to reject it. God, all he had to do was say, oh, they're all going to reject it anyway. Poof, they're all gone. But what did he give them? Opportunity. No one is going to stand before God on a final day of judgment without having had opportunity. They were given opportunity. Now, their hearts were shut off to it. Their hearts were shut off because they would not receive God's word. That's what the word declares. Why wouldn't they see? Why are they blinded? Because they wouldn't receive God's word. If you do not believe me in the little things, how are you going to believe me in the great things? If you won't accept the pages of Scripture written, laid out before you in simple understanding, if you won't receive those and apply those, then how am I supposed to touch you? How can I reach you? How can I do anything more than what has already been done? But yet he sent the preacher. And the preacher taught. And nobody came. But the preacher taught. The word went forth. And the choice was made. Jesus tells us why men make that choice, right? Why? Because they love the darkness rather than the light. Yeah. And that word for love is the word agape. 
They sacrifice themselves to the darkness rather than walk in the light. But still, the Lord sends the light. So they can have a choice. So that they can have an opportunity to choose. Verse 10. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and they'll shut their eyes. What's he saying? They're not going to apply what you're saying. Their hearts are dull. They're not going to hear what you're saying. Their ears are heavy. And they're going to fall asleep in the middle of the message. So next time I see one of you guys fall asleep, I'm pulling this scripture out. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it says, lest they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return and be healed. So then Isaiah says to him, Lord, how long? How long is my ministry going to be like this? How long is it going to be like this? And the Lord says to him, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, and the houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it, and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak, whose stump remains when it is cut down. So the holy seed shall be in the stump. So what's he saying? Hey, everybody's going away. They're all going. Israel's going to go into captivity to Assyria. Judah's going to go into captivity to the Babylonians. They're going to be in that captivity, Judah, for 70 years. At the end of 70 years, those who want to return are going to return. Not going to be as many as there was at one time. God says it was a tenth. A tenth of what they started with before they split is going to come back. But what did he say? Did you catch what he said? The holy seed is in the stump. The holy seed will be in the remnant. Who's the holy seed? Yeah, man. The first promise recorded in the Bible. You know where it is? It's called the Proto-Evangelicum, which is Latin for the first mention of the gospel. Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. I will put enmity between your seed and his seed, between the woman's seed and the devil's seed. Most of us have been through biology, and we know the women don't have seed. Men have a seed. What's he talking about? He was talking about the virgin shall conceive and give birth. And you will call his name what? Emmanuel. God with us. That's a promise from Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. But the, ba- the battle's between two seeds, right? The seed of God and the seed of who? The devil. Jesus said, I come in my Father's name and you have not received me. Another will come in his own name and him you will receive. We call him the son of perdition, the man of sin, the Antichrist, the seed of the devil. Ultimately will be defeated by the return of the king, Jesus Christ. So he's laying these things out. We're just going to go a little ways in chapter 7. Chapter 7, he goes on. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. Now, here's what happened. Uzziah died. Jotham took over. Jotham reigned short time, was a good guy, but he didn't last very long. 
He died, and Ahaz takes over. Ahaz was a dirt bag. Not good king. He's reigning in Judah. Not Israel, but Israel's put together a little coalition coming against him, and they did not prevail. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. Now, when we see Ephraim, Ephraim is an idiom for Israel. Ephraim is, is one of the idioms talking about Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, one of the 12 tribes we have laid out for us, uh, only they're going by the name of one of those tribes, Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Now you go out and meet Ahaz and Shear Jashub. Shear Jashub. How'd you like that name? Uh, Danielle and Jason are looking for a girl's name, but it's a boy's name. But maybe we could change it up and they could name their coming daughter Shear Jashaba. Something like that. We'll see. I'll, I'll present it to them, see what they say. Shear Jashub. Uh, means a remnant shall return. That's what that name means. So the Lord said to Isaiah, Go meet Ahaz, this dirtbag, and Shear Jashub, your son, whose son is it? Isaiah's son, named a remnant will return. We saw that remnant returning at the end of chapter 6. At the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted, for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Ramalia. That's those three guys that were together making a coalition to come against Judah. God is saying to Isaiah, tell Ahaz, this dirtbag king, tell him not to worry about those two guys. Those two guys, because there was bigger problems in Israel than there was in Judah, and God's going to deal with them first. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramalia have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it. Let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabal. <clears throat> Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years Ephraim will be broken so that it will not be a people. And within 65 years the nation of Israel was taken into captivity by Assyria, and that was the end of that. Assyria were not nice people. The Assyrians were uh, probably one of the more cruel peoples of, of the area. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. So this is a word of the Lord spoken to Ahaz. Then the Lord said, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Now, how would you like that offer from God? God says to Ahaz, you ask me for a sign, I'll give you one. You name it. Name your sign. Why, that'd be pretty cool. That'd be pretty cool. But Ahaz, he's not, a, he's not really a very solid guy. And he doesn't really want a sign. He's trying to make himself look pseudo-spiritual. So he'll respond. He says, oh, I, ask, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Whatever Ahaz. Ahaz did not do not one good thing as king. So this is not a spiritual moment for Ahaz. This is Ahaz being pseudo-spiritual, trying to play the game. Oh, no, Lord, I won't test you. 
But, you know, it's like the Lord said, with their lips, they draw near me, but their hearts are far from me. He goes on. Then he said to him, hear now, O house of David. Now he's not talking to Ahaz, house of David. House of David, that's, that's speaking to the, the entire nation. Okay, not just focused in on one nation. Hear now, O house of David. It is a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Listen to this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. That word you in the original language is pointed back towards the house of David. I will give you, the house of David, a sign. What's that sign? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Can you believe Isaiah brought that prophecy to a wicked king in a, in a time, low time in the nation's history and declares to them a, another promise of the seed. Remember the seed we read at the end of chapter 10? The holy seed will be in the stump, in the remnant that returns. And then he says, this is the sign, Ahaz. This is the sign to the nation that a virgin will conceive. Now, folks, there are people who want to argue because they're knuckleheads and they don't understand anything that they want to go and say, well, a virgin can just mean an unmarried woman. Yeah, there are two words for virgin. And the word used here is not necessarily a word for, for just a woman, but you can make that correlation. But it's not much of a sign, is it? Behold, I give you a sign. A woman shall give birth to a child. Wow. That's shocking. That's quite the sign, isn't it? I mean, I'm sure that didn't happen every day in Israel. No, behold, I give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive. The virgin shall conceive. Her who has not been given to a man. That's a literal translation. She that has not been given to a man. She will conceive and bear a son. And you will call his name Emmanuel. Now, like I said, you got people that will come to your door and they'll tell you, Oh, Jesus isn't God. Well, in the Old Testament, they say that the child that would be born of the virgin would be called what? God with us. Not a little g God with us, but God with us. Fulfillment of a promise that God gave in Genesis chapter 22 to Abraham. When Abraham was offering his son. When Abraham was offering his son as a picture for us of what Father God would do with Jesus, his son, on the very same mountain, in the very same place, because the top of Mount Moriah is also known as Golgotha, the place of the skull where Jesus would be crucified. There he goes to the top of that mountain, and then, what is it? Isaac says to his father, Dad, where's the sacrifice? His father said, he prophesied, the word said, That God will provide himself the lamb. Now, I don't know how many ways you can twist that around short of God will be the lamb. The sacrifice. God. And then so Abraham named that place Jehovah Jireh. Yahweh Yideh. For in this mountain, he said, it shall be provided. And on that mountain 2,000 years later, the son died on the cross 
for our sin. Fulfillment of a promise from Genesis 22. Fulfillment back to Genesis 3.15. Spoken of by Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 6 and in Isaiah chapter 7. Lord says to us, folks, that I will tell you the end from the beginning so that you will know. I am the Lord your God. He knows what he's doing. We can trust him. Put our faith, hope in him. No matter what the circumstances look like. And may we each make a decision. Hey, I want to be in God's presence. I want to be convicted. I want to be cleansed. And I want to serve. I want to be willing to do what Isaiah did. Even if nobody ever listens. Hey, here's the good news for Isaiah. People in his day didn't listen. People today marvel. The the skeptics in big institutions, universities, cannot explain the prophecies of Isaiah. We're going to read where Isaiah calls a dude out by name 200 years before he was born. How did Isaiah know what his name was going to be? He didn't. God did. They can't explain it. How did Isaiah, a thousand years before, before the time of Christ, how was he able to depict the crucifixion in Isaiah chapter 53? How was he able to do all the things that he was able to do to lay out the prophecies about the battles that would take place and what was coming? How was he able to do that? Because God worked in him. Nobody in his time believed him. But you and I, we're studying it still. We're still studying his word, the word that God gave him. Don't be afraid to do what God's calling you to do, even if nobody appreciates what you're doing. Because you honor God, and he will lift you up. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for this opportunity that we have to study your word. Your word is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Able to divide even the thoughts and the intents of our life. God, this is a living word, not just words on a page. Not some textbook. It is your last word to us. For at various times and in various places, the Father spoke to us through the prophets. He has, in these last days, spoken to us by his Son. And he said, it is finished. So, Lord, may we apply your word. May we ingest it, make it a part of who we are. May we eat your word, even as John ate your word. It's sweet to the mouth, but bitter in the stomach. It's sweet when we consider all the beauty of your word. It's bitter when we consider the requirement. What you're calling us to, the judgment that is coming, the cost of discipleship. But Father, may we make that decision to say like Isaiah said, Here am I. Send me. Lord, we pray that your spirit would move as we just close with a time of worship. Lord, we ask that your spirit would move and minister truth and life in in people's lives, Lord God. That they would just take a moment, Lord Jesus, to to seek your face. To seek that opportunity to, to see you like Isaiah saw you. High and lifted up. So, Father, we ask that you would move among your body in a mighty way. Be glorified and magnified this evening 
as we lay it out before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.